This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Sunday. Daphna, how's it going? You're back. I'm back. <laughs> I'm back. I'm back. Um, you know, we're glad to have I, you back. I'm what I learned on vacation <laughs> is that it's hard to take a vacation, right? I'm not very good at taking vacations. Um, and uh, we just actually talked about this in a in a recent recording. Is um, how much I love. What I do, I'm very grateful to have a job that is rewarding um, and helps me take care of my family and lets me um, walk with uh, with other families. And, you know, I still kept in touch with some of our families from, from vacation. I mean, um, this you know, is, because this... I, those babies were growing and developing and I I mean, can you imagine if you didn't work in the NICU where you're kind of allowed to check out a little bit here and there, mm-hmm. but can you imagine if you had like a practice, like a pediatrician with a group of babies, like you oh, would never yeah. be able to disconnect, would always be oh, on. Like there's, that's like true. it's just not in our, it's just not in our nature. That's it's true. just not in our nature. We're very excited today. We have, we have a, a legend of our field on with us today and, and it's quite an honor to uh, have the opportunity to chat with mm-hmm. uh, Professor Avroy Fanerov. Um, we want to thank Dr. Rita Ryan, who is so good to us and who's helping us make these connections. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, this, this, she was instrumental in helping making this happen. And so, so thank you, Rita, for, for helping us. Um, I almost feel like we shouldn't even read a bio. Do we even need to read a bio? I mean, Dr. Fanerov. Yes, we uh, should. We should. <laughs> Dr. Fenneroff was the Gertrude Lee Chandler Tucker Professor and Chair of the Department of Pediatrics and Reproductive Biology at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He also served as the Director of Neonatology and Physician-in-Chief at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. He is currently Emeritus Professor at Case Western Reserve University and the Eliza and Henry Barnes Chair of Neonatology. He is globally acknowledged as an international authority in the field of neonatology and has contributed greatly to literature in the area of neonatal medicine with particular focus on pulmonology, nutrition, and sepsis. He is the co-editor of Fenneroff and Martin's Neonatal Perinatal Medicine and Klaus and Fanneroff's Care of the High-Risk Neonate. Dr. Fanneroff has been recognized for his contribution to the field with numerous honors and awards, including the Abgar Award, the Professional Education Award, and the National Neonatology Education Award from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And he has been honored with an honorary fellowship from the Royal College of Pediatrician and Child Health in London and honorary doctors from the University of Witwatersrand, his alma mater, and the University of Turku in Finland. Like I said, he needs no introduction. Please join me in welcoming to the show, Professor Avroy Fanerov. Dr. Fanerov, thank you so much for being on the show with us this uh, this morning. My pleasure. Look forward uh, to it. <laughs> um, I wanted to start with a little bit of your background. For the people who may not know, you you grew up uh, in South Africa. Uh, if I pronounce this correctly, you grew up in Bloemfontein. Is that how we say it? No, I was born in Bloemfontein, uh-huh. but moved to Johannesburg when I was 18 months old. So oh, I grew I up in Johannesburg, went to high school there, went to medical school there. And then I did some of my training in South Africa and went to England to mm-hmm. do boards 
1964, which is a long time ago. Uh, went to Edinburgh, uh, became a member of the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh, did an examination in London, child health in uh, London. And I, I, uh-huh. uh, then went back to South Africa and uh, completed my pediatric training. I actually did boards in both medicine and pediatrics uh, in Edinburgh. And uh, in South Africa, it became evident to me that uh, nobody was caring for the newborns. Uh, I was at the children's hospital, and across the road was the maternity hospital that had uh, 3,600 deliveries. And the babies were on the obstetric service. Mm-hmm. And so I convinced my attending that we would go over there every day and would be available on call if wow. they needed us at any other time. And so I got to examine every newborn baby that was born at that maternity hospital. And that was just a marvelous experience. Mm-hmm. I also trained at a hospital called Baragwanath Hospital, now Chris Haney Hospital, which at the time had 18,000 deliveries. Uh, There were two physicians by the name of Weyburn and Kahn who started the premature units. Uh, Mm. The hospital was an old army barracks, and two of the wards were premature wards that uh, had room for about 40 babies in each. There was one incubator. So what we did was the babies were all wrapped in cotton wool to keep mm. There was a stove in the middle of the ward that heated the ward, and all the mothers had to stay in adjacent uh, accommodation, and they provided human milk. They expressed mm-hmm. it, which was pooled and uh, pasteurized, and the only feeds for these babies was uh, human milk. And the results, and we're talking now in the 1960s, for these premature infants with minimum technology was as good as anywhere uh, in the world. I wanted, I'm very happy that you mentioned your experience at the at the Barra Hospital. Um, is it, you were there at the same time with your friend, uh, John Mazels, correct? Jeffrey Mazels. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Mazels, I'm sorry. We, we were actually there at different times. Oh, I see. I, I mean, see. We, but, we graduated a year apart, but we were crisscrossing. So <laughs> we, were not, we were not there together. How, what do you think this experience at uh, Baraguanath Hospital taught you? I mean, this was... I mean, I was doing some digging before this interview and I was able to see some of the pictures. It's, it's a massive area. It's like you said, it's, it was, it was take, it was installed in, in what used to be army barracks and, and there was a lot, lots of patients. And I'm wondering, I'm sure this has some form of impact on you as a physician and how you led your career. And and I'm wondering what that was. Well, firstly, uh, it gave you enormous experience. Uh, you saw the whole spectrum of disorders and it gave you confidence that there wasn't anything that you wouldn't be capable of caring for. There was nothing that scared you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Between the internal medicine and pediatric experience uh, at this hospital, You saw everything in the textbook and some of the things that never yet appeared Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. the textbook. You saw everything from all the venereal diseases, uh, all the disorders of nutrition, uh, from scurvy, rickets, uh, quashiorcor, which is a protein deficiency. And uh, it was just a very vast experience. So one more thing about this experience, you mentioned the fact that the babies were all in one room, that Mm -hmm. the mothers had to stay with the baby. Um, 
obviously we'll talk about your training with with Marshall Klaus and and John Kennel, but do you think that this experience had an impact on you when it came to the introduction to family-centered care when in more modern uh, NICUs, like in the US, families were not allowed, right? I mean, that was a, a, a very significant contrast where in one instance, families were not allowed in the NICU and in another's, like at the Barra Hospital, they were actually needed to stay in the NICU. Unquestionably, uh, the, those were two of the abiding thoughts. Uh, one was to keep the mother close to the baby. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to what you might consider the first book on neonatology by Houdin, uh, who said, fundamentally, keep them warm and keep their mothers nearby. So uh, that that was uh, that aspect, and then the feeding of human milk, and uh, today this is something that we're emphasizing more and more: the benefits of human milk, uh, especially for the extremely premature infants. It it must seem almost comical to you. We we're having this uh, push in the last, you know five years about just that, getting parents back to the bedside, um, really pushing for, for human milk. But that was something that, you know, people were doing at the start of, of your training. So how do you think we got, especially here in the States, got so far away from those fundamentals and now we're having to swing the pendulum all the way back? Well, the, the problem in the United States was fear of infection. Mm -hmm. So fear of infection meant parents don't come into the mm. what was then an ICU. They were very primitive. Mm -hmm. I mean, they weren't really intensive care units. Mm -hmm. uh, the head nurse was in charge of the baby. Uh, mothers, fathers not allowed into the unit. Uh, and there were consequences. Mm -hmm. One of the first studies that I did as a fellow, was uh, we kept a record of the visiting patterns of the parents, and we followed the babies. And you would think that if you've got a baby in an ICU, you'd be there every day, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to leave. And that's why I love the idea of these single-family rooms where the parents can stay with them. Well, we found that if the mothers visited less than three times a week, the babies were at risk of abuse and abandonment. Mm. Just wow. simple observation. Just <laughs> the number of visits to the hospital uh, was a f foreboding of what was going to come. Mm, wow. You also describe in your, you know, your early career, when we're talking about family-centered care, like you mentioned single family rooms, even now as we're inviting families back to the unit, um, you know, we're trying to put them in their parental roles, but that was still different than what you experienced where the NICU mothers were really a community for one another, right? They were pooling their milk. They were sitting together in their rooms with their babies. And so how can we take those, those experiences that um, are really lacking in our units today about, about community, um, supporting families by letting them support one another? Well, I, I think that's an important aspect. And I think that the move to kangaroo care uh, and early kangaroo care has been very significant and uh, getting mothers and fathers involved in the care of their babies. I mean, Kennel and Klaus, who I worked with, uh, were really pioneers and pushed for uh, parents in, allowed, allowing them into the unit. And that came in an observation by Dr. Klaus, uh, who was at Stanford at the time, and found that uh, these highly intelligent mothers with PhDs, they'd have their baby, the baby was in the ventilator, and then he found a total disconnect. They were totally unable to bond with their babies yeah. and to take care of them. So to, to go to... to, to 
Dr. Klaus and Dr. Kennel, you 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 told us you were uh, in South Africa, in the UK, and then you decide to make this move to the US to pursue a fellowship in neonatal and perinatal medicine, right? Right. Um, and 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 you land in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, was that what, what was? I mean, I'm curious as to why Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> well. My boss in South Africa had actually arranged for me to go to Toronto uh, with Paul Swire, and that was one of the leading neonatal units at the time. And then I got a letter from Dr. Swire saying that his fellows were not leaving, didn't have the funding I was have to come the following year. Uh, I just got married, and we were eager to go in 1969, not in 1970. <laughs> so I applied for different jobs and got a very warm letter from uh, Dr. Klaus uh, of acceptance. We didn't really even know where Cleveland was. Uh, <laughs> it, at the time, it was the seventh largest city in the U.S. Today it's mm -hmm. top 50. Uh, <laughs> But it's a wonderful medical center. And uh, I went for one year, which became two years, which became a career. So uh, you I'm, know, sure, I'm sure they're very happy that uh, the way things turned out. <laughs> the man proposes and somebody else disposes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'm hoping you can give us... Um, You know, I think for people who are new to neonatology, we are so, we feel we're so technologically advanced and we are, but um, I think it would be helpful to to have people understand how much neonatology has changed, um, you know, over the course of your career. I mean, we're such a young specialty compared to medicine as a whole. Okay, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. Firstly, Delivery of oxygen. Mm. We didn't have good monitoring. We certainly didn't have the pulse oximeter. We didn't have the transcutaneous oxygen technology. So you were just running oxygen and not mm -hmm. what the blood levels were. It so happens that one of the techniques we used early on was to deliver oxygen with a funnel. Mm. We adhered over the nose and mouth. And uh, what we didn't realize is that we were inadvertently giving them CPAP. Wow, yeah. That was probably quite helpful, but we mm -hmm. weren't monitoring the oxygen well at all. And then we got blood gases. Well, to do one blood gas, you needed five ml of blood. Oh my god. Oh my gosh. So, you know, let's <laughs> Now now we do it with a heel stick, not, right? It's with a couple drops. Well, yeah. how many blood gases can you do if you're draining the baby? Yeah. In fact, the commonest cause of anemia mm -hmm. in she was the the blood draws. Mm -hmm. And so miniaturization of the blood gases and electrolytes and sugars and things uh was amazing full yeah electrolytes i mean yeah. you you weren't even able to monitor electrolytes well the iv fluids were in one liter bottles mm -hmm. and you didn't have the pumps that you have today of course not there were those little rats that you adjusted and if inadvertently mm. the ratchet was open too wide you would flood the baby and put them into pulmonary edema. Wow. So the new technology, the pumps, the transcutaneous oxygen monitors, the biggest advance was really the pulse oximeter. But mm -hmm. that, that really was a, a major uh, breakthrough. And when was that uh, pretty much standard, right? Because I, I was trying to look exactly as to what year was that, but obviously there's the date in which it's it's discovered and it's patented and all that stuff. But when was it common common practice in the NICU? I'd say it's in the 1980s. Mm. Wow. So yeah, really not, not that, that long, long ago. ago. <laughs> 
I mean, those are things that we just um, take really take for granted, take, uh, you know, the, uh, for granted. But wow. that that was uh, you know a, a major thing. Now CPAP, um, the basis for CPAP was a study that was actually done in Cape Town by a, a physician by the name of Vincent Harrison. And Vincent Harrison showed that if a baby was grunting, and the grunting is helping them maintain their tidal volume, is preventing total collapse of the lung in expiration. And if you put an endotracheal tube in, you stop the grunting, mm -hmm. but the oxygen tension fell. So he showed that the grunting was beneficial. And mm -hmm. George Gregory um, instituted CPAP and published the first article on CPAP in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, if you go back and look at that article, it would never be published today. Mm. <laughs> Why is that? Because it was not randomized. This was a series of patients, and I think the number is probably around 15. Wow. He just showed that the arterial oxygen tension rose uh, with the, the CPAP, and it was a major breakthrough. Uh, shortly after his publication, um, which was going to appear at the pediatric research meetings, um, Everybody was looking for ways to do CPAP. I wanted to ask you, I think I heard in one of your interviews that uh, even at the time, ventilators were adult ventilators, correct? Mm -hmm. so, so, so there was no, obviously, I mean, what we use today, uh, these, these ventilators designed for neonates, that was not obviously available. And so you were using adult ventilators to ventilate preemies. That, that's absolutely correct. And if you think about it, uh, it's a disaster. Because, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because the tidal volume of a three kilogram baby is what, 21? Is that mm -hmm. how much you want to deliver? And the smallest thing on the ventilator is 250. Holy moly. So you're barely touching the knob to deliver the volume. And guess what? Half of the baby's got pneumothoraces. Sure. Sure. How could they not? <laughs> and uh, it was just, uh, it was one of the reasons Dr. Klaus didn't like to ventilate babies is because he mm -hmm. had polio when he was a mm. And so he had a flail right arm and it was very mm. hard for him to intubate. So he was always looking for means. <laughs> of treating respiratory failure without having to intubate. <laughs> That's so interesting, though. I mean, given what we know now, that was the right thing to do for, for many of those babies. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure at the time the uh, ET tube leak was your friend then. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I wanted, you, you've mentioned, you've described this era that we're talking about right now as the era of an anecdotal anecdotal medicine where where you really didn't have randomized controlled trials and you were going by experiences, a person's experience with a certain technique or with a certain intervention. Um, is there, when you look back on this era, obviously the data was not always present, but is there, what what do you take away from this from this moment in time where where care for these preemies were, were driven by experience and not so much by large randomized trial? Well, I, I think the, the the era of neonatology, and uh, unfortunately, um, science was not readily applied in the early days, and um, there were many disasters which you're familiar with. Um, if you go back in the fifties. Uh, particularly with the antibiotics, uh, 
well-intentioned because babies were getting infection, particularly the preterm babies, but the sulfonamides displaced um, bilirubin and produced connectris. Chloramphenicol uh, caused uh, liver failure. Uh, other antibiotics caused deafness. Uh, tetracycline stained their teeth permanently. Um, and even the cord care, um, mm. if you're familiar with the story of Pfizer hex, but the commonest cause of infection in the 50s was uh, Staphylococcus aureus. And the source of the infection uh, was mainly through the cord. So we started bathing the cords with uh, Pfizer hex. And this was fine. You gave one bath to a full-term baby and you used Pfizer-Hex. Nothing bad's going to happen. What's Pfizer-Hex? It's an antiseptic. Like, like some chlorhexidine? Like a chlorhexidine, chlorhexidine family, yeah. It's in the chlorhexidine family. And so you now take a premature baby mm. with very transparent skin that mm-hmm. absorb things and you bathe the premature baby in Pfizer hex, and you don't have CT scans, and you don't have ultrasound, and you don't have MRI, and you don't learn uh, until somebody does it on guinea pigs, and then you start looking at babies and find that you've caused uh, cerebellar lesions uh, from the Pfizer hex. And there were just too many of those kind of problems. The only good thing in the 50s was uh, Bill Silverman did a series of studies, randomized trials, on thermal regulation Mm -hmm. and showed the importance of keeping the babies warm, uh, the concept of the neutral thermal environment, and uh, that it wasn't humidity, it was temperature. So he sorted that out very nicely. And Virginia Apgar uh, described her scoring system. And uh, I think those were some of the main positives. Actually, I love this. Maybe you can, you know, give us by decade your the, the major accomplishments. <laughs> this is cool. Uh, well, in the 60s, um, we started doing a little better. And uh, we still had some major problems. One of the things is that the formula in the 1960s uh, stressed the red cells. Mm. So there was hemolysis related to the fatty acids in the formula. And if you gave them vitamin E, uh, and this was Frank Oski's work, this stabilized the red cells and they no longer continued to hemolyze. However, somebody said, well, if you're giving them oral vitamin E, surely if we give them an intravenous vitamin E, that'll be better. Better. Well, it wasn't. It was worse. Uh, There was an agent called Fair Evil, uh, and it was given intravenously, and it caused liver failure and death, and that got taken off uh, the market. There were also people using different kinds of resuscitation equipment, and uh, that was proven not to be valuable. And the other thing in the 60s related to oxygen, it was actually in the 40s that they discovered the relationship between oxygen and what was called retrolental fibroplasia, which we now call retinopathy of prematurity. And so they said, well, okay, if giving babies too much oxygen causes this retinopathy, we need to restrict the use of oxygen. So in the 60s, there was a period of restriction of the use of oxygen. And Cross showed that for each case of blindness that was prevented, probably 16 babies died on the day of birth because we were restricting oxygen. 
we we just reviewed that exact story on the on the, on our podcast and it's and it's a it's a very interesting era of neonatology between the like this this uh, elasticity between our relationship with oxygen where initially free flowing then restricted and and so took us took us time as a field to figure out exactly what what is our what is potentially the best practice and we still don't know today right and we still don't know <laughs> um so since we're talking about about research, um, you are um, a founding father of the NICHD uh, Neonatal Research Network. Can you tell us a little bit about when the Neonatal Research Network was created? Um, what year was that, and what was the drive? What was the the incentive to to get this this started? Well, it was started in 1986. There was a proposal that you had to present. Uh, and a number of places uh, submitted their proposals. Eight centers were actually funded, and um, uh, it was 1986 with the funding. The first studies were started in 1987, and um, the first study that we did uh, I was actually the principal investigator, was the use of intravenous immunoglobulin to prevent nosocomial infections. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had to stop midway because there was some issues. And, uh, there was a concern that the placebo group were having problems. And uh, eventually, We studied over 2,200 babies. And it's the most disappointing day in my career. Oh, really? Washington and was given the results. I was given the booklet. And uh, what we found was that in the controls, the rate of infection was 19%. In the IVIG group, it was 17%. So uh, the routine use of intravenous immunoglobulin uh, was not a good idea, although smaller studies had all shown that it was very effective. There were 10 studies that had shown it to be effective. Uh, And uh, this was clearly very disappointing. There have been subsequent studies that have all found exactly the same thing, that uh, you really need a designer intravenous immunoglobulin that's going to account for the specific organisms that are going to be encountered. But it was a great study, and we learned a lot. And one of the things that emerged in that study uh, was that there was marked center variability. Uh, both in the rate of infection and the types of infection. And this has been a feature of all the subsequent studies in the network that this marked center variability. And we continue to look today for the magic potion. Uh, What is the unit with the lowest rate of infection and the best results doing differently to the unit with the highest rate of infection and the worst outcomes. And we translate that to RDS, BPD, NEC, uh, whatever. And uh, we're still looking for the answer for the so-called magic source And uh, I think we've seen a lot of improvement with the uh, quality improvement projects and Mm -hmm. standardization uh, of approach. And I think this has been particularly effective uh, with infections. The bundled care uh, has made a a big uh, difference. I actually have two questions about that. You know, um, there are lots of academic centers who may not value QI work in the same way as like bench research 
that's unfortunately had has been my experience in some instances. So, um, what I hear you saying is really promoting the value of those uh, of those interventions. And um, I guess, what do you say to to centers that aren't valuing the work, and to people who are really interested in the work but aren't getting the um, support they need to do that type of work? Well, let's say they're academic snobs, uh, hmm. <laughs> but but I I think that QI is terribly important. I, I think it goes amongst our major advances because it is teamwork. Mm-hmm. It is building teamwork. It is building a consensus. It is building a standardized approach to things. And it has made a big difference. If you go back to the 1986-87 when we started that study, uh, we're saying, yeah, 20% rate of infection is mm-hmm. in the extremely low birth weight. But today, 0% is what's acceptable, mm-hmm. and any infection is unacceptable. And I think QI has played a major role in that. And there's different aspects to academia, and everybody mm-hmm. is important. Important to be doing bench research. It's important to be doing human genome research. Uh, it's equally important to be doing clinical research. And uh, I, I would heartily encourage anybody and everybody to be participating in QI projects. That's awesome. Thank you. I also. Um I love how you mentioned how hard it was for you when um, that IVIG data did not come out as, you know, as maybe you uh, had anticipated or hoped. And we talk a lot about, um, you know, resilience on our, on our podcast. So how, how do you recover? How do you move on to the next thing or uh, resubmit the next paper? How much, you know, how much time do you take before, um, beating on again? (laughs) Well, firstly, I'm going to go and address the thing about the paper. Mm. You have to recognize that you're going to be rejected. Mm. We're all very spoiled. You know, we Mm. in high school, we did well at college, we went to medical school, we did our residency, and we weren't rejected. Mm-hmm. You submit an article to the journal, and it's rejected. And you've just got to have thick skin. You've got to mm. <laughs> and resubmit it. Uh, you know, you also have not, must not be wedded to every sentence that you write. You've got to accept that others have different ideas. We had an article. It was an editorial, in fact, that we submitted to the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was published by them. And uh, my colleague and I spent a lot of time wordsmithing every sentence and it carefully. And they accepted it. (laughs) Then they sent back the editor's correction. You know, they've got this group of uh, editors who just edit the articles not the editorial staff. They have these group of editors. There wasn't one sentence. (laughs) And all you got to say is, okay, they're publishing it. They wanted their style. That's fine. So the answer to your question is, yes, you've got to have thick skin. You've not to be wedded to something that you write and be acceptable to changing it. And you also have to question things. You can't accept everything that people tell you. You want want to be a pain in the butt and say, what's your source? What's the evidence for that? Is that really true? And uh, it's... It's only by doing that that you'll move ahead. Because if you just accept the current status quo, 
you're never going to make any advance. You've got to be thinking outside the box. You've got to be questioning why, why, why. Um, yeah, this, this, this mentorship that you're providing us reminds me of something I read in uh, the book Think Again by Adam Grant, where he talks about his, a discussion he had with Nobel Prize winner Danny Kahneman. And Danny Kahneman says that he, changed his, he changes his mind at a speed that drives his collaborators crazy. And he says, my attachment to my ideas is provisional. There's no unconditional love for them. And I think it echoes exactly what you're saying. That, that's a wonderful quote. Uh, and my mentor, Marshall Klaus, was one of these guys who really could think outside the box. And his career spanned a number of different things. For example, he discovered the lipid in surfactant, mm. in addition mm -hmm. to all the other things. That he did. No small feet. But, but he, <laughs> his attention span was in microseconds. <laughs> talking on one thing and he'd move on to something else and he'd say, what's wrong with this man? I'm talking about jaundice and he's talking about maternal bonding, okay? <laughs> and the relation to, to jaundice. So I, I wanted to ask you about your career as a researcher, and, I, and, and we've talked about it, obviously, but I wanted to ask you a specific question because we interview many people, and, and sometimes you can associate a name with almost a disease or a treatment. Um, but in your case, you're very hard to pinpoint. You've touched on everything, mm -hmm. and I find this to be fascinating. Uh, I am wondering if you could explain exactly how do you keep up this, this constant bouncing around and, and keep your curiosity alive? And, and, and how do you, what do you say to trainees who are being asked on the first day of fellowship, like pick an area, right? When, when, when we're looking at a career like yours, it seems that it seems tremendously enjoyable to just go from respiratory physiology to NEC to long-term outcomes. I mean, this is this is just it, phenomenal. It, exactly that. I, I was a jack of all trades and master and I, I didn't want to be pigeonholed. So I loved nutrition, I loved infection, I was interested in jaundice, and uh, I was particularly interested in teaching and spent a lot of time devoted to that. And I'd like to comment on a couple things um, related to that, because... Um, when we started in the field, uh, there were people who thought they were authorities, but there wasn't mm. the evidence. And when Dr. Klaus and I did our book, Care of the High-Risk Neonate, uh, it was unique from the standpoint that we would have somebody write a chapter. Let's say we had somebody write, uh, let's say, uh, write on jaundice. Well, uh, phototherapy was in vogue at the time. On the other hand, there was an authority on bilirubin uh, at Johns Hopkins, and he didn't believe in phototherapy. So we got him to write point-counterpoint in the textbook, which is something that wasn't done before. We also introduced new material in the form of cases, so that we thought this is a much more interesting way of reading something than just reading a uh, boring text. And that was a very successful uh, formula. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a, a good way of getting people to think and not to just accept, okay, this is the way you do it, and that's the right way of doing it. I, I wanted to ask you about education because I love teaching, and I take great pride in teaching. And I'm wondering when does the teacher crosses the boundary? When does the doctor become more of a teacher and less of a doctor? You've said in an interview that you are more proud of the people you've trained than the babies you've helped throughout your career. Like that this that this gave you a, a, 
uh, more in a more sense of pride than 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 being a clinician um can you explain well there, how there's you a, reach that yeah there's a multiplier there uh mm-hmm. because i can take care of x babies mm-hmm. if i train 20 people and they take care each take care mm-hmm. of x that's 20x that that you're helping and uh, you, yeah, trickle down effect. There's a trickle down effect, and the uh, pride is in your academic children and grandchildren mm. and great grandchildren. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of fun in that regard because Wally's, Wally Carlo, who you interviewed, is my academic child, and Chinese mm-hmm. are my academic grandchildren. And uh, when we get together at meetings, we celebrate in that uh, in that uh, form. But mm-hmm. you know, there, there's so many stories related to neonatology. Let's take, for example, phototherapy. Uh, well, you're aware that the observation was made by a medical student and a nurse mm-hmm. in a nursery in England. In the UK, yeah. that they, they left, they left uh, they, that she was uh, she was noticing the babies that were by the window had less jaundice, and then she swapped them. Correct. And eventually, they they found and they found the tube. If I remember correctly, they found the tube that was supposed to be sent for bilirubin treatment by the window seal, and then and then that sort of was the second hit that they were like, all right, sunlight has to do something. Right. So, Sister Mary Jean Ward, right? But this is in Birmingham, England, where the sun doesn't shine very much. <laughs> to start with. So now we come up with the phototherapy units and the initial units, you guys haven't seen these, uh, had these huge tubes, the fluorescent tubes, the whites, mm-hmm. which had some blue light in them. Mm. And you had a plexiglass uh, outside them, which was filtering the UV. Now, the salesmen used to come in and they'd try and sell you a phototherapy unit and they'd say, oh, this is a great unit. It's got UV light in it. And you'd say, get out of my office. You don't know what you're talking about. The UV is dangerous, okay? But those lights, originally, we had to change them every thousand hours. So you had a note on the phototherapy unit as to how many hours you were using them. And then you had eight fluorescent lights that you were changing every thousand hours, which becomes, you know, let's say you've got 20 units, 20 of these phototherapy units times eight, 160 bulbs that you're changing every thousand hours. That, That becomes quite an expense. So the change to the modern units with the LEDs uh, is not only more efficient, but it's also cost-saving. Uh-huh. Since we're since we're going back to some of neonatology's milestones, I wanted to ask you a little bit about something we've touched on, where we have moved away from. You used you told us that in South Africa, when you began, the babies were in the postpartum unit. And now we're in the NICU. I feel, I feel like what we're seeing from the 1950s is that neonatology was tied at the hip with OB, and we've, we've pretty much separated the two. And I feel like family-centered care is trying to bring that back. But how do you think we're going to be able to, without going all the way back where neonatologists don't have any place in the care of the newborns, but how do we go back to a place where we're more balanced with our colleagues in obstetrics? I think we have to be good listeners. Uh, We have to be good colleagues. And uh, we have to be collaborative in our planning. And uh, in that way, we can do it. Uh, I I think that pediatrics was an orphan of uh, internal medicine. And it took many years until uh, pediatrics particularly in the British Commonwealth, uh, grew into self-sustaining uh, departments. And um, 
In fact, where I trained, pediatrics was a branch of the internal medicine until the 1960s. I wanted to um, jump a little bit since we're entering the last 15 minutes of the show. Um, I am fascinated by the relationship you have with your son, who uh, is also a neonatologist. And from my research from for this interview, my understanding is that he was a NICU. He is a NICU graduate as well. Is that is that correct? Uh, absolutely correct. And he is a an iatrogenic NICU graduate. Uh, he was SGA, although you'd never notice that today. Uh, and uh, he had passed meconium. And I saw the anesthesiologist give him positive pressure without suctioning him. So blew all the meconium into his lungs. His x-ray was absolutely classical. And quite frankly, he was born in 1969. Uh, had he been born in 1990, he would have been on ECMO. He was there. Mm -hmm. Wow. So uh, it was touch and go whether he was going to make it or not. Um, he he was pre-med at undergrad and then had a month off and uh, studied for the LSATs <laughs> and aced them. So he went to law school first. And uh, at the end of his second year of law school, after he'd worked at a large firm in Chicago and at Procter & Gamble, he said, uh, Dad, I love law school. I hate what lawyers do. Mm -hmm. so, well, you're going to graduate law school and <laughs> do the bar, and then you can move on, which is what he did. So as a senior at law school, he did his organic chemistry and wow. did the MCATs and uh, was admitted to Case Western Reserve Medical School. Wow. Then, then he says he's doing obstetrics. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't think that's a great idea, but anyway, <laughs> uh, he changed his mind in the first year when he saw that there was a shift towards uh, wanting female obstetricians. And so he came and did pediatrics. And then I said, do something with a better lifestyle than pathology. <laughs> and he said, no, that's what I like. And as a natal fellow, uh, he commuted to Chicago once a week uh, and studied ethics there with the group. And so he's a uh, neonatologist with a law degree in <laughs> ethics. And runs the program uh, at Rainbow. Yeah, his path worked out then, uh, doing law and then medicine. And we've worked together very well. Yeah. And we've done uh, the textbook that Marshall Klausner did. We've done two editions of that together. I wanted to ask you about that because I think it's a, it's such a poetic story where you work on this textbook with your mentor, Marshall Klaus, and he he unfortunately passes away, but you get to then share this experience with your son who is in the same field as you. Can you tell us a little bit about like this legacy where it goes from your mentor to you to then your son? I mean, I think it's pretty unique and, and quite interesting. It, it, we've, we've had a seamless working relationship there's never been any tension. Uh, there was never any tension with him in the division because I did not make the decision for him to be accepted as a fellow or to be recruited uh, to the faculty. This was all done by my colleagues. And uh, John and I just worked together very easily. And uh, it, it's uh, indeed a great pleasure to be able to work uh, with uh, your son and in fact we were able to put uh, photographs of my granddaughters on the cover of each of the edition of the books so oh that's oh, that's, that's who so the babies cool. are okay that's, that's cool i didn't know that 
Uh, I don't know if I would have such a smooth uh, working relationship with my dad. It tends to be pretty fiery. <laughs> We're all both very opinionated people. So <laughs> kudos for making that work. We both have very even tempers. So. Mm. That, that helps. But, that but helps. I think you've raised one other point that I'd like to emphasize is that mentorship mm-hmm. is so important in your career. In choosing a good mentor, don't rush into choosing your mentor mm-hmm. uh, during your fellowship because your mentor is your friend for life, uh, your mm-hmm. colleague uh, is your sounding board. Uh, and uh, it's wonderful to have a good mentor and it's important that you do have a good mentor. Yeah, I, it's obvious that you have so much, you know, admiration for your uh, academic family, as you as you call them. And I wonder if you feel like there has been a shift in trainees and mentorship, where you know before you would pick a potentially pick a program because you've picked a mentor and not the other way around. Um, and it seems sometimes with all the pressures that some of our mentors have. Um, that that relationship is not the same as it as it once was, say, say during your career. You know, I, I think that times have changed and they will continue to change. And the modern generation is not like our generation. Um, when we were working, if somebody got sick, you just picked up their calls and you there was no questions asked when you took a job uh, you never asked how much time am I going to get off what is my vacation and you barely asked what your salary was going to be in fact a number of people took jobs without knowing what their salary was going to be today out front is what's my salary going to be? How much time am I going to be getting off? Do I get paternity leave? Do I get this, that, and the other? It's it's a different mindset. Uh, If if I do a call for you, you've got to do a call back for me. Uh, It wasn't like that in, in my day. Yeah, and you you speak about these kind of bargaining um, chips, and it seems like you have a very good relationship with your family and that your family is important to you. And you have, on top of all of your work, a myriad of of hobbies. So how did you navigate that then um, with kind of a work-life balance? Well, most of the work gets done at night, and so... Family time is important, and personal time is important. Uh, I think exercise, tennis, squash, whatever else uh, meet or need, running, jogging, uh, walking, uh, golf when you get older because it's the most frustrating game. it's all of these things are important. And above all, to be a good listener. Uh, don't be giving people answers all the time until you know all the facts. And uh, maybe they'll think of you as a procrastinator if you're asked a question and you're not answering it immediately. But I think before you make decisions, gather all the facts, make sure that the evidence is strong. And, uh, you know, sometimes you've got to balance uh, what is going to be harmful, what is going to be beneficial, does the benefit outweigh the harm. And uh, above all, first do no harm. I um I ha- we're, we're coming to the end of the show. I had I had maybe two more questions that I wanted to ask you. I wanted to go back to what we were discussing earlier when we were talking about um your son being in the NICU and I feel like 
having a child in the NICU definitely at least changes your relationship with the ICU. And I am wondering how did that experience impact you both, um, both I guess not both, what, how did this experience impact you as a neonatologist? Well, I think it made me a kinder neonatologist. It made me one more aware of what it's like to be a parent in the ICU. Uh, mm -hmm. At first, I was uh, trying to be both a physician and a father, and uh, they banned me from looking at the medical record. <laughs> I think it was a very good decision. Because if you've got a, an infant in the unit, you're a father, you're not a physician. And, uh, but I think it did make me a more compassionate, uh, caregiving uh, physician over the course of my career. Uh, we in the early days were not cognizant of pain management to the same effect as we are today. And in fact, uh, I am ashamed to admit we used to put in chest tubes uh, without any anesthesia. And then my late colleague, Maureen Hack, was in an auto accident, and she got a hemothorax, and she had a chest tube placed. And she said, we are primitive chest tubes with uh, our giving local anesthetic. She said, you have no idea how painful this is. And so that gave us some insight. And I, pain management, we became much more acutely aware of pain management of that uh, episode. And that, that relates a little bit to my last question. I'll, I'll let Ben close out the show as, as we usually do. But, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the um, the mistakes we've made along the way, which ultimately have led to huge advances in saving, you know, millions of babies. Um, but at a time like right now, where there's a lot of mistrust in the medical system, um, how how do you think we can help people um, understand and come to terms with? Um, how, you know, the history of medicine um, impacts the, the amazing work that we're able to, to do today. And, and like you said, you've, you've written so much, you know, on, on ethics with your son and, and, you know, how do we, how do we balance that by saying, you know, we have experimental things that we think will change how we treat people forever. And, and we're not always right, or it takes some missteps along the way. I think education, communication, transparency, and uh, we have to hammer in that pediatrics does best with prophylaxis, and there are many examples of that starting in the newborn period. Uh, I think the biggest example is the hep B vaccine. Because of the long-term impact of that, but uh, prevention is the approach that we've got to emphasise, and we've got to have people educated. Uh, I I cannot get into the minds of the anti-vaxxers. <laughs> um, uh, it's always interesting uh, to hear a neonatologist talk about prevention, since so much of what we do is really reactive to, to disease or, or to pathology or physiology. Um, what are ways that you think that neonatologists in the future will be, you know, bigger advocates um, prevention-wise? Well, I, th I think the unraveling of the human genome has mm -hmm. opened many pathways uh, and uh, it's not necessarily prevention, but it's earlier recognition mm -hmm. uh, of uh, some of the severe illnesses. Well, that that was my my last question, Daphna. So I wanted, ah. <laughs> um, I was wondering, I was wondering exactly that. I mean, I know in the past you've said that the, the the future of medicine is personalized medicine, and I was wondering if you still believe that, considering all the things that we've seen in the last decade. Um, so, so yeah, so I think, I think you, you partly, um, uh, 
you you answer that. Um, Dr. Fenneroff, uh, then if if um, if I get to ask that last question, then um, what is your secret to being such a, an amazing educator? Humility. Ah, we've we've heard that now many times many over times. Yeah, from the greats. It's, it's the key. <laughs> um, okay, I think I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at that. Um, Daphne, anything else before we close out the show? No, just you know, you again, your career has spanned uh, almost all of neonatology, and if you have any kind of words of advice for, we have a lot of trainees listening um, to the show. You've shared a lot of wisdom, um, but any other things you think people need to know? I think we're very privileged to be in a position to take care of these sick babies. It's a real honor, and you should remember that. And to remember that words are like a sword. Think of them carefully before you use them. You should also realize that your facial expressions, when you don't use words, are being read by the family. So uh, you have to try and present a happy face to them. Dr. Avroy Fanaroff, thank you so much for being on the, with us. This was amazing, amazing, mm-hmm. amazing. Uh, I'm sure the audience will enjoy this interview tremendously. Um, I guess we will be seeing you very soon at the SEND conference. Uh, so uh, can't wait to meet you in person. Thank you for the time <laughs> you took to talk to us today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. Nikku, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.